Well, good morning, Grace Life Church. Thank you to the music team. You guys do such a beautiful job of stirring our heart's affection to the things that we need to hear this morning. And what we need to hear this morning is the word of God. So please, if you will, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be going through Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about a word. And that word is intercessor. Intercessor. Merriam-Webster defines it this way. Intercessor is the act of interceding or a prayer, petition, or entreaty in favor of another. The Oxford English Dictionary says about the same word, a person who intervenes on behalf of another, especially by prayer. Now, both these definitions carry religious connotations, but mainly the idea of somebody else interceding or intervening on behalf of another to provide help, to help them. And when you think about it, we actually use intercessors in our lives quite often. We just don't call them that anymore. These are people who act on our behalf, usually experts in their field, who come alongside us when we need them. When you go to buy a house, you pay a realtor to act on your behalf, to guide you through the process, to look at market values and to tell you if your home is going to be priced too high or too low and to help you through the process of all the paperwork, all the legal paperwork and the documentation needed to make the purchase. If you're doing your taxes, you pay an accountant to act on your behalf between you and the CRA to make sure things are filled out properly and hopefully you'll get a return and not have to pay. But closer to our text this morning and regarding an intercessor, another example would be a lawyer. If you've ever found yourself in a court of law, standing in front of a judge, you're definitely going to want to hire a lawyer. You want, to, you want to hire somebody who knows the ins and outs of the legal system, someone who's an expert in the law, and who can help you, especially if the matter involves large fines or even jail time. They're serious in nature. And someone who not only knows that, but someone who understands what you're going through, who can relate to your situation, to your case, so they can best represent you. Somebody to be sympathetic to your plight. Some people even hire teams of lawyers to represent themselves because of the seriousness of their charges, paying vast sums of money to ensure that they don't end up in jail or convicted of the charges that were brought against them. Now, if we will take seriously and even pay for people to intercede on our behalf regarding things of a temporary nature, like buying houses, filling out taxes, or more importantly, dealing with earthly courts, how much more important is it that we have someone to intercede on our behalf for things that are eternal in nature? How much more important and necessary is an intercessor to represent us in the heavenly courtroom before God to help us deal with our sin. You see, when you break God's law, you are guilty of sin. When you break his moral code, his Ten Commandments, when you don't obey them, you are guilty. And that needs to be reconciled. That needs to be dealt with. Now, the world is eager to get representation for earthly things, like we mentioned earlier. They'll pay for those services. But when it comes to something that is this important, this critical, 
they tend to want to represent themselves in the courtroom of God when it comes to his law. They'll say, I can represent myself. I'm a good person. I got this. When I stand before God on my own, I don't need anyone to help me because with, I don't need anyone to help me with that because God is going to love me for who I am and for all the good things that I've done. And I don't need another person to represent me because I'll be the best person to represent myself because who knows me better than me? But self-representation in this courtroom is absolutely catastrophic. It's a catastrophic approach to something that is so important because when we are dealing with God's law and the breaking of that law, you are dealing with something that has eternal consequences. And how are you going to represent yourself in that moment? Because when it comes to breaking his law and his heavenly courtroom, the problem is you can't represent yourself because you've been breaking his law since you were born. You've stockpiled the offenses up until this moment. And how are you going to represent yourself in that moment? Because in that courtroom, that heavenly courtroom, you keep breaking the law. You can't stop yourself from breaking God's law. And how are you going to even get yourself to the courtroom? The Bible tells us that nothing that is not holy, something that is not set apart, that is made holy, can be in God's presence. And if you're guilty of sin, how can you be in his presence? How can you get there? How are you going to get to God to plead your case? And it has to be before your life is over. How will you get direct access to God right now? Remember, when you die and you come to his courtroom, it isn't to figure out if you broke the law or not, if you're guilty or not, because you have and you are. When you come to the heavenly courtroom, at that time, when your life is done, it's for sentencing, for the crimes you've committed. And that's why you need an intercessor now. You need an intercessor to act on your behalf now before you die and step out of this world to help you deal with your sins between you and God. You need an intercessor who can help you reconcile your sins to God, who can go before the Father and plead your case, not on your merits, because you have none, but on his that means you need an intercessor who has lived a perfect life, who not only knows the law perfectly, but has kept it himself. And you need an intercessor that is sympathetic to your condition, who is sympathetic to your case, who knows your case. An intercessor who can go and offer restitution to God and offer payment on behalf of your sins so that you don't have to. Someone that can pay the fine. An intercessor who can not only deal with your past sin, but an intercessor who can deal with your current sin and the sins you are going to commit, all of your sins. An intercessor that will remove your guilt for all time, who can go to the heavenly throne room, who has direct access right now at any time, who knows God, who knows the judge. An intercessor that will finally make you clean forever. This is the intercessor that the author of Hebrews is writing about. Except he uses another word in these verses. He calls him a high priest. And we will see how this high priest has the ability to remove your sin that stands between you and God, to make full restitution so that your sins are fully dealt with for all time, and that you can be at peace with this judge in this courtroom. This high priest knows your condition. 
And he can best represent you because he can relate to you and offers you direct access to God in times of need. So let's read our text. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're taking notes this morning, we're gonna have three points. The first point is the perfect priest found in verse 14. The second point is the perfect sympathizer found in verse 15. And the third note is the perfect plea found in verse 16. The author of Hebrews has written this epistle to show us that Jesus is better than anything, anything that you can compare him to, and especially when it comes to the work of a high priest. And coming into chapter four, where we find ourselves in verses 14 and 16, we are getting the opening argument for what will be the majority of the book of Hebrews, running through all the way to chapter 10, 18, that Jesus is the better high priest better than any priest that has come before. And so the first point, the perfect priest, back in verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The therefore here in verse 14 actually links this section back to Hebrews chapter two, not to the warning that just came before it. The author is developing here in chapter four in more detail what he had already stated in Hebrews chapter two. Turn there in your Bibles, please. Hebrews, just a few pages back, chapter two. We're gonna look at verses 17 to chapter three, verse one. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now flip back to chapter four. You can see that the author is picking up on this very thought again. And after having us consider ourselves with a warning passage just previously, he now wants us to consider our high priest. This high priest is worth considering because of what we've read in these two sections. He's worth considering because first he made propitiation for our sins. He paid the way for us to be saved by paying for our sins through his death on the cross. Second, because his own experience, through his own temptations and experience, he knows what it means to pass through temptation and to not give in. And thirdly, because he has passed through the heavens and is securing an eternal rest, which happens to be better 
than the earthly rest that he was warning his hearers about back in chapter three and four to not fall short of. He's pointing them to an eternal rest that will last forever. And not only does he talk about this great high priest now, but he also qualifies him with the word great. He's not just a high priest. He is a great high priest, the high priest. And so now we have to consider what makes Jesus greater than any high priest that came before him. But before we can even answer that, we need to answer how Jesus can even qualify as a priest. How is it that Jesus can even be a high priest and offer a high priestly prayer like the one Pastor James has been taking us through in John? How can he intercede on behalf of people? The office of the high priest was an office that was hereditary and was traced through the tribe of Levi from Aaron, the brother of Moses. Numbers 18, verses six to seven. Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord, to perform the service for the tent of meeting. But you and your sons, referring to Aaron, with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil. And you are to perform service. And I'm giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So that means that a high priest had to come through Aaron. They had to be a direct descendant traced all the way back to Aaron. But Jesus doesn't come through Aaron. Jesus comes through the tribe of Judah. So how can he even qualify as a high priest? Well, this is what makes Jesus' high priesthood even better from the start. Jesus' high priesthood is better because it didn't come through a genealogy. It didn't come through Aaron. His high priesthood, his title of high priest was given to him from Yahweh himself, from God. Turn to Psalm 110, verse four. And just keep your finger there because we're gonna be there a couple times. Psalm 110, verse four. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God never installed any earthly priests with an oath that is forever because he couldn't. He had to install earthly priests through genealogy because they kept dying. Jesus's priesthood was installed for an oath because he lasts forever. He is eternal. He's not subject to death like the earthly priests of Aaron. He was installed as a priest by God through an oath. And this is the same argument that the author of Hebrews makes when he says in chapter seven, starting in verse 13, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, referring to Jesus, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, meaning genealogy, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested to him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We see that Jesus was not only instated as a high priest by Yahweh, by God himself, 
but he was instated on the basis and the power of his indestructible life. This is why Jesus can be called and have the title and act as a high priest, because God has done that work. And no earthly priest can last forever, but Jesus does. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, verse 8. And where does this great high priest officiate? Well, back in verses 14 in chapter 4, it says that he passed through the heavens. And although heavens here is plural, the author isn't so much concerned about flushing out how many heavens there are. We know that Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 talks about being caught up into the third heaven. And there's early Jewish traditions and writings that talk about there being seven heavens. But that's not the concern of the author here. Listen to F.F. Bruce on this. Quote, we need not try to put a number or amount of the success of heavens involved and determine whether he is envisioned as passing through three or seven of them. The plural heavens, as regularly in the New Testament and Septuagint reflects, the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament, which is always plural. The idea here is that the author is talking about the quality of the heavens, their transcendence, that he is going through the heavens in a transcendent quality. It's the quality of the location, not the quantity that the author is trying to get across. He is greater than any earthly high priest because he doesn't operate in an earthly temple or building. He does his priestly work in the throne room of God in the very presence of God with direct access to God. He is not separated by anything, by any building, by any curtain, or by anyone. Again, back in Psalm 110, if you look at verse 1, it says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. If you're going to intercede on behalf of people, if you're going to intercede on their behalf with the judge to make things right, to not only plead their case and pay their fines. You can't get any closer to the judge than this. At his right hand and is in his direct presence in the sanctuary where he dwells, not separated by anything. And again, the author of Hebrews highlights this when he argues from the lesser to the greater when it comes to the location of the high priest and his interceding work. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, he starts with, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, meaning not of this world, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Not only does he intercede in the direct presence of the Father, but he intercedes 
with a sacrifice that guarantees eternal redemption. His sacrifice is not with the blood of bulls or goats, not with defiled earthly animals who don't even know why they're being killed, but with his own spotless, unblemished blood offered to make payment for our sin, to make our conscience clean from dead works. This high priestly work in the presence of our Father intercedes for you, not just to cover your sin, but to fully remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. To not only make you a free person, but to just go and sin some more. No. But you are now made an adopted child of God through this payment, through this priestly work. An adopted child of God who has been given a new heart with new desires to bring glory to him and to enjoy him forever. And this is the exact confession that we need to hold fast, fast to. Back in chapter four, verse 14, when he says, let us hold fast our confession. Well, which confession? The confession we just talked about. The same confession that Paul talks about in Romans 10, nine, when he says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus's great high priestly work of offering himself as a sacrifice for your sins was accepted because God raised him from the dead. And that's the confession that we need to hold on to. The confession that our sins are forgiven forever, removed from us. When you repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross as payment for your sin, that is the confession that you need to cling to and hold on to as you leave this building and go out into the world. And that's what he says in this text. It literally means that when you hold on to that confession, he's literally saying, cling to it, hang on to it. Don't let it go. This requires determination on our part. And as believers, we know this when we go into the world. It's hard to hold on to our confession at times. You'll be faced with trials and temptations and persecution. You'll be faced and chided by those who don't believe what you do. But remember your great high priest in those moments. Remember the work that he did for you. Remember the work that he did reconciling you to the only judge that matters, and that's God. Remember that confession and hang on to it. Keep it close. Now, in this moment, you may say, well, Rob, it sounds like he's a great high priest when compared to the earthly priests, but there's a problem. At least the earthly priests could sympathize with our condition because they were human like us, and they faced the exact same temptations like we do because they operated out of earthly temples. If Jesus is operating in the heavenly throne room right now, how can he truly sympathize with us when he's there and we're here? Well, that brings us to our second point. Verse 15, the perfect sympathizer. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We need to go back to verse 14 in chapter four and pick up something we left behind. The part where the author says, Jesus, the son of God. 
Our author dropped that in there for a very specific person, purpose, to highlight the humanity of Jesus Christ as the incarnate son. Now, although sonship has been assumed through the epistle up to this point, the direct title son of God is not used until now. And it is very intentional that he's using it here because he is working to combine the humanity to the divinity of Jesus as a great high priest. It's almost like the author anticipated the argument that Jesus wouldn't be a great high priest if he's just divine because he can't relate to humans. If he only has a divine nature, how can he actually relate to us while we're down here and he's up there? Now, we know that the author absolutely affirms Christ's divinity because back in chapter one, verse three, he says, and he, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word, meaning that Jesus is the exact same as the father. But yet at the same time, the author of Hebrews can affirm his human nature in chapter two, verse 17, where he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The author is making the argument that Jesus can sympathize with us no matter where he is operating because he was made like us. He has a divine nature, but he also has a human nature through the incarnation. And he is not so far removed that he only hears our cries and can't act on them. Yes, it is true he's operating in the throne room of heaven right now, but when it says he can sympathize with us, sympathize here is not limited to just compassion or empathy, but it tells of Jesus's ability to help those who are afflicted. And we see the same word, sympathize, used later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The author of Hebrews was writing to these people and their friends, their brothers and sisters were being arrested and put in jail. And they had to sympathize with them. They were, they were sympathizing with them and going and helping them. When they were having sympathy for them, it created action. They were going there, bringing them food, meeting their needs, because when they were in jail, they had no way of getting food or help. And so sympathy is used the same way. That means that Jesus will not only hear those who cry out, but he is able to and will help them in their time of need. He will act. His sympathy will cause him to act. But we need to make sure that we don't go too far in making Jesus just like us, exactly like us, so that he can actually sympathize with us. Although Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature, there's a distinct difference between us who also have a human nature and Jesus. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never fell short. And he never sinned while facing temptation. That's clear from not only this passage, where it says, tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, but from other passages as well, like 1 John 3, 5, where it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. When we talk about differences between Jesus' humanity and ours, we have to understand that Jesus never sinned. He didn't have a sin nature like we did. 
He didn't come through Adam like we did. He came through the incarnation. So he didn't have a sinful nature. And this is where, when it comes to being a sympathizer, people can raise some objections as to how he actually, truly can sympathize with us fully. Objection number one, there'll be three of them I'll run through. Objection one, how is it possible that Jesus can truly sympathize with us in temptation if he never sinned? If he never experienced falling short of God's moral standard? The argument there is that if he never sinned like we do, how can he truly understand our plight? How can, how can he truly understand dealing with temptation if he never fell like we did? Well, first of all, to be sympathetic to people facing temptation doesn't require that one actually gives in to sin to understand how bad their trial or temptation is. You can feel the full weight of temptation without sinning because temptation in of itself is not sin. Listen to Philip Hughes from his commentary on Hebrews on this. Quote, temptation itself is neutral. To be tempted indicates neither virtue nor sinfulness for the proper connotation of temptation is testing or proving. And virtue is in the resistance and overcoming of temptation, whereas sin is in the yielding and capitulation, end quote. Temptation itself isn't sin. It's when you fail in that testing that you sin. And this is helpful because I think in the argument of Jesus being a better sympathizer, the fact that he didn't sin and never sinned makes him a far better sympathizer to us because he didn't give in. Think about it this way. What happens when we face trials and temptations? Well, we can resist, and then they flee sometimes. But then they can come back, and we can resist again, and they can come back, and we can resist again, and they can come back. And it keeps building and ratcheting up. And eventually, due to our sinful nature, at some point, we give in. At some point, we fall short, we sin, and we give in to that temptation. But what happened when Jesus resisted temptation, never falling short? That means that Jesus, when he resists temptation, it comes back and gets ratcheted up. He resists again, it gets ratcheted up. He resists again, it gets ratcheted up. He resists, it gets ratcheted up. It keeps building. And he never gives in. Through his entire earthly ministry, Jesus never sinned. That means that he felt the full weight of every temptation that came his way to its utmost, he never cracked, he never gave in, and he bared that weight fully his entire life. He never gave in to sin. This means that he experienced temptation to its fullest in ways that we cannot. And this is why he's the better sympathizer. Because only Jesus can say, I've not only been where you are, but I've been way further. So I can truly know what you're going through. I can truly sympathize with you because I've been there and more. Only Jesus can make that claim. That's why he is the better sympathizer in his sinlessness because he didn't need to experience it to understand and sympathize with us, to be there with us, to help us through temptation. Objection number two Jesus hasn't experienced the exact same temptations as me. For example, because the internet wasn't around, he isn't tempted to post mean things or look at inappropriate stuff. 
Therefore, he can't truly sympathize with me because he doesn't know temptation exactly the same way I do. He hasn't been tempted the same way I have been. Well, the verse in our text says he has been tempted in all things as we are. Does that mean that he faced every single temptation the world will know? No, absolutely not. Jesus was never tempted to steal a car or a cell phone. They didn't exist. But much like us, there are things that we aren't tempted to do either. There are things that you're not tempted to do as you live now. All temptation can be boiled down to the paradigm of obeying God's law and staying in the Father's will for our lives. Whether you're in the year 33 or the year 2033, there is one moral law that, God's hold, that God holds everyone to, and it's aligned with his will, not only for his son, but for us to obey. Stealing is stealing, whether you are changing the scales in the marketplace or taking a pen from the office supply cupboard without permission. Looking with lust is the same as when David saw Bathsheba and when you do it on your computer screen. Jesus knew daily temptations like we did as well. It isn't like he didn't face some of the same temptations. Absolutely he did. This is why Isaiah 53, 3 describes him as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. His whole earthly ministry, temptation came to tempt him to disobey his father. His goal here on earth was to purchase our salvation. And Satan's goal was to stop that from happening at every cost, at any cost. So he was tempted over and over his whole ministry to fall short. And how many sins would it have taken for Jesus to fail? One. One single slip up, one single failure, and it would have all been over. Jesus was tested to be prideful when John said, you should be baptizing me, Jesus. He was tested to be discontent by Satan in the wilderness to make food when he was hungry. He was tested again by Satan to tempt his father's covenantal promises of protection by throwing himself down from the temple. He was tempted to worship other gods when Satan offered him the kingdoms and glories of the world, tested by Peter to not go to the cross, tested by a fake trial that he could have easily shown was unjust, tested when they crushed a crown of thorns into his head, tested when they struck him and beat him and spat on him, tested when they scourged him and ripped chunks of flesh out of his back, tested when they took him and nailed him to a cross, tested when they hurled insults at him, and tested when he would have been suffocating under his own weight with nails through his feet and, feet and hands, all of it, testing, temptation, so that he would not complete his task of obeying his father's will and go to the cross to make propitiation for his people. Jesus faced temptation like no other. This is why he can sympathize. Third objection. Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. Both are active in his life, so his divine nature is what he must have used to overcome temptation. Since we don't have one of those, he truly can't sympathize with us. Now, this one takes a little bit more time to answer because it involves speaking to Christ's divine nature and his human nature and how he was able to resist temptation. 
We know through Jesus's earthly ministry that he operated out of both natures. He was able to feel thirsty and tired through his human nature. He was able to know the hearts of men through his divine nature. Both natures operated without violating each other, which is why we need to understand the difference between why something cannot occur and why something did not occur when we're talking about Jesus resisting temptation. Dr. Bruce Ware touches on this in his book, The Man Christ Jesus, quote, although Christ was fully God, and as fully God, he could not sin, he deliberately did not appeal, as it were, to his divine nature in fighting the temptations that came to him. As a human, he not only could be tempted, but was tempted in the greatest ways any human has been tempted in all of history. Yet for every temptation he faced, he fought and resisted fully and totally apart from any use or appeal to his intrinsic divine nature. You can't really make the argument that his divine nature is what kept him, is why he didn't sin. That's why he could not sin. His divine nature was what ensured he couldn't sin, but it was his human nature that allowed him to feel the full force of temptation through his life on earth and which by he did not sin. Let me bring this together here. Imagine if I tell my children that they're not allowed to play their video game system at night from 10 p.m. until 10 a.m. the next morning. If I say to them, I want you to obey, I want you to go and not play the video games from 10 p.m. till 10 a.m. Now, without their knowledge, I install an app on my phone that allows me to lock the system so that it's impossible for them to play it from that time, to keep it from being played. The next morning, I check in, and sure enough, they haven't tried to play it. It's been left alone. Now, did they do that because I locked the system down with the app or because under their own will and volition, they resisted the temptation to play the game system? If you tell them that they didn't play it because I installed the app and that didn't allow the system to be turned on, you're actually taking away from their effort and not playing the game system. This is the difference between why something couldn't happen and why something didn't happen. My children couldn't play the system because I locked it out. It was impossible. But they didn't play the system because of their own effort. In the same way, we wouldn't answer the question of how Jesus did not sin with the answer to why he could not sin. Meaning his divine nature is why he could not sin when facing temptation. And the effort of resisting through his human nature is why he did not sin. We wouldn't say that Christ didn't sin because of his divine nature. That is why he could not sin. So then if his divine nature didn't help him resist temptation, and that was fully done by his human nature, then how did he do it? How did he resist that level of temptation, that amount of severe persecution? How did he do it? He loved God's word. Think of the psalmist in Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This was Jesus constantly referring to the word of God, constantly feeding on the word of God. And beloved, this is the same exact scripture that you hold in your hands right now. He relied on the Holy Spirit. When he experienced temptation through his human nature, he relied on the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation. The Holy Spirit played a significant role in Jesus 
being able to resist temptation, as foretold in Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. In Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus healed by the power of the Spirit in Acts 10, 38, cast out demons by the power of the Spirit in Matthew 12, 28. The Holy Spirit helped Jesus resist temptation throughout his entire earthly ministry and to do all that he did in resisting. And this is, again, beloved, the same Holy Spirit that indwells you right now if you're a believer. He also prayed to his Father. He sought his will and prayed to his Father in his greatest times of need which through Christ, our great high priest, you now have direct access to do as well. Because Christ has interceded on your behalf at the throne room of God, you can pray directly to the Father for help in times of need, in times of temptation, just like Christ did. You have the scripture, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have direct access to the Father in times of need. This brings us to our third point, the perfect plea. Verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a great high priest, he can sympathize with us by resisting every temptation yet without sin, he can now come through, and we can now come through him to the Father in prayer. We can draw near. The Christian's approach to God the Father is to be characterized by confidence or boldness. This isn't pride, but a deliverance from fear. This isn't on our merits, it's on the merits of another, Christ, our intercessor. This is why we boldly can go to the throne room of Christ or the throne room of God. We can go with confidence and boldness at any time. Think of the Lord's prayer where he uses the address, our father, our father. He is your father. When your sins have been forgiven, he's your father. When you have come to have your sins forgiven, you are not only given a legal right standing with this judge, but the judge then comes down off the bench and adopts you as his own child. What a beautiful picture we have of our God in reconciling sinners to himself. He not only provides the way of redemption, the way of freedom through his own son, Jesus Christ, but he then gives them new hearts with new desires so that they will now glorify him and enjoy him forever as his adopted children. The throne may stand for royalty, but the main characteristic of this throne, of God's throne, the Father's throne, is grace. And in the time of need, which could be any time for you as a believer, you have direct access through Jesus Christ. You may receive mercy and find grace. 
And mercy is the removal of things you deserve and grace is being given the things that you don't. And we can only find that through the feet of Christ at the throne room of grace. You are no longer restricted by earthly buildings where another person goes on your behalf once a year to make peace between you and God. The curtain has been removed. The veil has been torn in two. Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes on your behalf now and forever. If you don't know this, if you don't believe this, if you've never heard this before, now is the time. Now is the time to come to this throne room of grace for forgiveness of sins, to cry out, to repent, to recognize who you are in light of what God's word says, that you have broken his law, so that you can come and have this perfect intercessor interceding on your behalf today, right now. There's no time to delay or to wait. You can have this grace and mercy. You can have access to it now. And I would ask that you do that, that you consider this great high priest as we have this morning. He is our great high priest. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for believers, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, we are so thankful for your word. So thankful for the opportunity to read about Jesus Christ and his high priestly work as our intercessor, as our mediator between you and us, Father. Not only acting as our intercessor, but being the payment for our sins. Father, what a glorious high priest who intercedes forever. There is none greater than Jesus Christ, Father. Thank you for showing us that this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, it's in his name I pray and ask all these things. Amen.